this installment of our new books in the arts and sciences panel podcast sponsored by columbia university's dean of humanities and school of arts and sciences and the Heyman center for the humanities and the society of fellows i'm ann levitsky today's podcast celebrates the publication of the english translation of professor of french and philosophy suleiman bashir diagna's book the ink of the scholars reflections on philosophy in africa in french L'Encre des Savants, Reflexion sur la philosophie en Afrique. The title of the book is taken from a saying of the Prophet Muhammad, which says, The ink of the scholars is more precious than the blood of the martyrs. Now, I'll bring you Bashir's words from the panel, where he discusses the development of philosophy in Africa and situates his book within this broader context. Madeleine, thank you for chairing this session. I would like to, chat, to, to thank uh, uh, the Heyman Center and uh, uh, Eileen for putting this event uh, uh, together. I'm very uh, honored and grateful that you are uh, uh, celebrating this uh, book of mine which has uh, uh, had this uh, afterlife, as Benjamin says, through its translation into, into English. And I would thank uh, uh, also Chani and Maison Française for uh, hosting uh, and organizing, co-organizing, co-sponsoring uh, this event. And thank you very much, Madeleine, for just being this wonderful colleague. And I could not uh, uh, hope uh, I could not have had a, a better uh, colleague to introduce me. Gary and I uh, uh, go way back. And we share to have uh, uh, worked on uh, Leopold Cedar Senghor, in particular, the Negritude authors. And uh, uh, we share to have called for a rereading, let's say, of Senghor and Negritude uh, uh, writers. So uh, I'm very happy that, Gary, you could make it and accept to, uh, to discuss uh, my book. <clears throat> Uh, you can feel in the trembling of my voice how overwhelmed I am truly to, to, to see so many friends uh, uh, here. And I thank you all. As we say in my, in my language in Wolof, I thank each and any of you by his first name and his surname. That is a way of saying that looking, I recognize the bird of a, of a friend here, uh, uh, the blonde hair of another friend there, and I, I, I see that, and I thank you all for being here. I was hesitating on the best way to say a few words about my, my, my book, and the best way to do that is to talk about the very expression African philosophy, which is what I'm going to do in the next uh, few minutes. In 1978, I was taking a test in France, which is called aggregation. It's a very French thing uh, uh, that uh, uh, you, you never recover from taking those kind of tests. And uh, I was thinking, okay, what am I going to do as uh, next if I if I succeed uh, for my dissertation? I had the feeling that being an African with all the many problems in my on my continent, I had some mission to to to, to tackle what I would call the philosophical problems of Africa, which was just a, a, a big uh, phrase. I'm not sure it had a denotation. 
And, uh, uh, and then I read a book written by uh, someone whom I uh, came to know afterwards. His name is Paulin Huntonji, a Beninese philosopher. And the book was titled On African Philosophy. And basically what he was saying is that there is not such a thing as African philosophy. There is a philosophy produced by authors who happen to be Africans. And I thought, thanks God. I don't have to take care of, of Africa. I can do what I was planning to do, which is work on the algebra of logic and the encounter between mathematics and logic without having the feeling that I was betraying any kind of, of mission. And then uh, uh, something happened which we call life. Mm -hmm. And life means that uh, I, I did not I decided not to stay in France after uh, finishing my different degrees there. I thought that I had to go back home. And going back home meant that you would precisely be working on those philosophical problems. Unless you decide that you are going to be in your ivory tower dealing with Leibniz and Bull and ignoring what was happening around you, the kind of debates that were taking place, you could not just ignore this very expression, African philosophy. So what is it? What is behind that expression and what are the controversies? One could say that the very expression itself uh, 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 started, was, uh, appeared in after World War II. Uh, under the pen of this uh, uh, Belgian uh, missionary named Placid Temples, who wrote a book titled Bantu Philosophy. Uh, that was the first time there was an association between Africa and philosophy. Temples had traveled to uh, uh, present-day Congo uh, and with the mission of doing what missionaries do, which is evangelize and try to convert people. In order to do that, he uh, uh, learned the languages of the people among whom he was going to live and uh, uh, learned about their customs, their proverbs, uh, uh, their institutions, their art, their religion, of course. And uh, during the war, he wrote this book first in Flemish, which was his native tongue, and in which he declared that he was looking at not an anthropological or ethnological description of the Bantu people among whom he was living, but he was trying to reach beyond the surface that is what anthropology or ethnology reaches, the very uh, 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 philosophical postulates upon which the rest rested. In other words, he was looking for a set of philosophical ontological postulates upon which he thought that Bantu uh, uh, institutions, Bantu arts, or Bantu uh, 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 religions uh, rested. And he said that this is philosophical work and not ethnological work. That philosophy for him went deeper than ethnology and came first chronologically and logically. So the question he posed is, what is being for the people among whom I'm living? And to this question, for him, Bantu people responds, being is force. Not that being is 
characterized by force or has force, but uh, uh, being is the same thing as force. It is force is not predicated of being; it constitutes uh, uh, the meaning of being. So this is the first of a series of ontological postulates or axioms that uh, 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 Placid Temple thought he, has, he had identified uh, that explained uh, the language of the Bantus and their different institutions and uh, behaviors and customs, etc. The second being, each force is individual. Third, forces exert an action upon each other, upon one another. Force, the universe is a network of forces running from the force of forces down to the mineral by way of the noble deed, dead, those called the ancestors, the living person, the animals, the plants, etc. Something that is described usually by ethnologists as animism. Fifth postulate, a force's goal is to increase. The purpose of a force is to become more force. So what augments a force is good, and what diminishes it is bad. These are the fundamentals of what class, uh, Father Temples considered to be the dynamic ontology that Bantu culture and Bantu languages carried within themselves uh, uh, according to him. And he opposed that view to what he considered a static ontology in the Aristotelian tradition where you have a subject or a substratum which is itself unchanging and receives from outside uh, predicates that are attributed to it. When that book was translated into French from Flemish uh, right at the end of the war uh, by Présence Africaine, this uh, 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 publishing house in, in, in Paris, in the heart of the Quartier Latin, the book was a resounding success. In fact, Présence Africaine was literally created to publish this book, because before that, it was just a, 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 a journal. And the founder of Présence Africaine, Alun Job, uh, indicated to the preface he wrote to Bantu philosophy that this was with Jean-Paul Sartre's Black Orpheus, the most important book on Africa that he had read. And particularly important for Alun Job was that in showing the functioning of an ontology of vital force in the different spheres of Bantu social life, the book by Placid Temples was somehow reclaiming uh, uh, the notion of vital force from the murderous use that Nazism had made of it, uh, 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 restoring it to its meaning, or what should be its meaning, as a joyful celebration of the power of existing. To understand the success of Temple's book, which was welcomed as a foundational event by figures as diverse as the Senegalese Leopold Sédar Senghor or Sheikh Antadiop or the French philosopher Gaston Bachelard, requires understanding the rupture the book represented with uh, 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 the long-held view of Africa as a land uh, uh, of uh, um, wrapped in the mantle of night, as Hegel uh, uh, famously uh, uh, said. So with that book, a genre, a literary genre was born, 
And into the 1970s, from the 1950s into the 1970s, a series of studies on the philosophy uh, uh, in Africa, on philosophy in Africa, were uh, published. All of them uh, modeled after Bantu philosophy. So you would have books uh, on Yoruba philosophy, Igbo philosophy, or Akan philosophy, or the moral philosophy of the world of, and so on, uh, 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 so forth. Now, uh, uh, this is uh, uh, a place to say a few words on the important place occupied in philosophy by uh, African art. In fact, the reason why Senghor, whom I mentioned earlier, loved this book is that he found that the best evidence for what Placid Temples was saying was African art. He read in the series, in the system uh, founded on, upon the postulates that I have uh, uh, recalled uh, uh, um, from uh, uh, the, the book, he found the real explanation or the good reading of what African art uh, is, what l'art negre, as it was termed uh, in the beginning of the 20th century, was. So uh, uh, to say that the arts of the continent, the visual arts in particular, constitute the best proof of this philosophy of vital force is to say that it provides a hermeneutical key to read creations that are characterized in spite of the differences between the diverse cultures and regions from which they come, by now, especially in this university, we know that Africa is not a country. It is a huge continent with differences and so on. But in spite of all these differences, you have this common denominator of African art, which is this extreme stylization uh, and geometrization of forms and a rejection of naturalism uh, concerning, for example, the proportions of the human body. Put briefly, the work of art does not represent it symbolizes. And what it symbolizes and manifests, says Senghor, for instance, is being force, being hyphen force, become rhythm. The creation of the art object, like its perception, takes place in what the Senegalese poet and philosopher calls a rhythmic attitude that dances together with the object being produced. And it is not by chance, by the way, that the sculptures that are carved by the Makonde people in Mozambique, and I thank my student and uh, colleague, Alvaro, who has called first my attention to those uh, uh, sculptures. Uh, so the, the, the sculptures they call Ujama, which present surimposed motif and human figures and are called trees of life. In sculptures in which, for example, an old man's head is disproportionately large in comparison to the infant's body that carries it, we are invited to see, uh, uh, apercevoir, says Senghor, in the disproportion that we initially perceive, the sub-reality that the object manifests, which would be, in this case, the continuous cycle of life force where the ancestors have the vigor and youth that childhood promises and where newborns are close to the ancients whose existence they reproduce. That can be read, read in this kind of sculpture. Now, one question which could be posed, as I said, uh, uh, temples had opened the gate for these kind of uh, uh, studies. The question that was posed sometime in the middle of the 1970s was to say, well, wait a minute. 
can we really say that uh, uh, philosophy is the expression of a culture? That Bantu philosophy is the expression of Bantu uh, uh, culture? Isn't philosophy, on the contrary, a way of distancing oneself from precisely culture? That would be the gesture of our philosophic philosopher ancestor, Socrates, breaking away from uh, Athens culture, and that is the reason why he's condemned by that same Athens. And along those lines, uh, the, the book and people who thought in that uh, uh, following Temple's model were attacked by a younger generation of philosophers. Uh, who uh, actually claimed that they were continuing the criticism of uh, uh, M. Césaire against the book. But if you, we read what M. Césaire said about Bantu philosophy, M. Césaire never criticized the book itself. He dismissed it. It actually, what he says, what M. Césaire writes is to say, well, why is this Belgian missionary so interested in the soul of the Bantus? These Bantus are not interested in putting their soul in display or showing their ontology. They are asking for better wages. They are asking for better conditions of work. They are unionizing and rioting. And ultimately, what they want is their independence. So that explains the difference between Césaire and Senghor. When people say that Senghor loved the book and Césaire hated it, Césaire did hate it but he hated the very idea and the preface of the book. He never talked about the content of it, while Segor was interested for the artistic, aesthetic reasons that I have explained in the content of uh, the book. So, uh, uh, but the, that was the criticism against the whole approach that was condemned as ethnophilosophy. And ethnophilosophy would say, a, a few things against this book and against African philosophy understood in the Templeton way. They would say, well, you cannot have collective philosophy. In order for a discourse to be philosophical, you have to have an individual taking responsibility for his thesis and signing his own name. If I write on behalf of all the Wolof about the moral uh, 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 philosophy of the Wolof, who am I to do that, to speak in the name of all the Wolof? And am I implying that all the Wolof people think in the same way? And they would add that this is very dangerous politically because you are postulating some unanimity and you are justifying all the dictatorships a la Mobutu who would say that, well, African people are people of consensus, and that is the reason why I represent consensus, and I am going to rule them with executive orders. <laughs> above all, <laughs> above all, the critique of ethnophilosophy also asserted that, in fact, in the context of orality, you could not have philosophy which was a very important point to be made. It raised the question of the capacity of orality to carry something akin to critical approach. Is a culture which is transmitted orally capable of showing in that oral literature of, uh, uh, that it carries and that it conveys and that it contains uh, the capacity for self-reappraisal, self-criticism. 
that was a good question to be raised. I uh, addressed that in my, in my book, answering that actually orality can be uh, 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 critical. The other aspect which I uh, uh, deal with and which uh, uh, explain the importance of Timbuktu, Ahmed Baba, and uh, what Madeleine uh, reminded us, is that actually identifying Africa and orality is just a, a, a presupposition. It is not true that anything in the essence of African cultures would make them oral cultures. And in fact, you only say that if you ignore the history, the intellectual history of the continent. You only say that if you ignore that, for example, the fact that Islam has been present in West Africa and in, on the Swahili coast of Africa since the 11th century at least, meant also the adoption of the Arabic script, either the Arabic language or the Arabic script and that many things were written. In particular, in particular, Islamization was not just about having a religion, it was also about receiving the so-called Islamic sciences or disciplines, and among them, among those disciplines, you had philosophy, Greek philosophy, Greek logic. So the whole picture of the history of philosophy as having followed what is called translatio studiorum, the transfer of knowledge from the Greek word. Usually we have a very, our textbooks follow a very unilinear uh, account of that. Philosophy was born in Greece and then was inherited by Rome and then went to Latin Christian Europe and from there uh, uh, we have pre-modern, modern, contemporary, etc. So philosophy appears as the unique destination of uh, 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 Europe. You do that by just ignoring that the so-called translatio studiorum followed tours, made tours and detours. It did not just go from Athens to Rome. It also went from Athens to Nishapur, to Alexandria, to Baghdad. From there, it went to Cordoba in southern Spain. From there, it went to Kairawin in, in Fez. From there, it went to Timbuktu. So in the 16th century, in the 17th century, scholars from Timbuktu in the heart of present-day Mali was discussing Aristotle's logic or Plotinus' idea of the one actually way, way before uh, uh, European presence there. So if you have to reconstruct philosophy of, in Africa, you have to also pay attention to the true intellectual history of the African continent, and that is something that I talk about also in uh, 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 this book. So uh, basically, uh, that is uh, uh, um, the history of this notion of uh, uh, African uh, philosophy put on the ground by uh, uh, starting with this foundational book, uh, produced this important literature, then came the criticism against what was called ethnophilosophy, and now that's where my book starts. Now we are at the point where what we are doing is in a more relaxed way without uh, uh, throwing 
hyphens at each other. I say throwing hyphens at each other because people who, uh, who were condemning uh, uh, temples and people who wrote after temples model were called ethno-philosophers, and those ethno-philosophers replied by calling their critiques uh, Euro-philosophers, saying that they had a very Eurocentric understanding of what philosophy is. Now we are at the point where what African philosophers do is actually just uh, uh, start with the problems themselves. Instead of having the metaphilosophical discourse about what philosophy is, you don't need to do that. You just start with the problems themselves, and the problems are going to indicate what approaches are adequate to what they are. So what would be the main problems? I identified four, as Madeleine said. I thought that the philosophy of vital force is not to be just dismissed uh, in the Caesarian way, and it's the, the, its connection to African art should be explored. That is the first part of my book. I also considered that uh, uh, the anthropological approach of the notion of time needed to be examined. Uh, uh, we all know this idea that uh, you know African people have a CFA conception of time, meaning if you tell them that we are starting at 6.15, you are lucky if they are here at 7. Actually, I realized that this is very French as well, and I learned from Gloria that it is Italian also, so uh, uh, we are in, in good company. But once you have laughed about that, Examining the philosophy of time is something that needs to be done, uh, uh, you know, out of this atmosphere of uh, stereotypes coming from ethnological approach a la, a la Levi Brühl. This is something I do also in a, another part of my book. And uh, I uh, look at the issue of orality, uh, as I uh, have mentioned, and uh, in that, uh, examining that, I have a chapter on the so-called manuscripts of Timbuktu. The, the attention of the world has been called to these manuscripts uh, after uh, terrorists actually went in northern uh, Mali, occupied Timbuktu, and uh, for a time, people were afraid that they would destroy those manuscripts. But Timbuktu is just a name and a symbol. Actually, these manuscripts, you find them everywhere. You even have more manuscripts in southern Mauritania, northern part of Senegal, than you have in, in Timbuktu. But uh, uh, Timbuktu has become the symbol for uh, that tradition of written erudition. I have to use the tautology here of written erudition in both West Africa and East uh, Africa. Last, there are the political questions that Africans are facing. Uh, uh, then uh, mentioned, did you mention Gambia? No. Actually, I'm mixing up with something that Salim said earlier. It has been a long day, so I'm mixing up everything that I have heard, which was very interesting uh, today. So the whole issue of human rights and, and, and uh, socialism, so-called African socialism, is what uh, constitutes the last part of my, of my book. So I hope to have given you the context by retracing the history of the very phrase African uh, uh, philosophy, the context in which I have written uh, 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 this book. I did not want to go into the details because I want to respond afresh to the questions <laughs> that are going to be posed by uh, Gary. At the end of the evening, Bashir responded to questions from the audience. I'll share a few of those questions and responses with you now. 
thank you so much. That was fascinating. Um, about this, about the, the question of language and translation, I guess that can you, what do you think about the fact that historically there's been this hierarchy of power between languages? And I mean, to, to what extent have languages internalized those hierarchies? And so within each languages themselves, there are some sort of um, limits, right, um, um, that reflect those hierarchies and how even through translation and moving from languages from languages, the philosopher can escape those historical, is that clear? It yeah. is clear, okay. it is clear, and I thank you for that question because you have put your finger on the paradox of translation. When, when, when uh, you praise translation the way I do, and actually the, the most recent book by Barbara Cassin is called precisely that, in praise of translation, uh, Eloge de la Traduction, uh, uh, you, you could seem to be naive to believe in this idea that we, th uh, thanks to translation, we are going to have this kind of uh, universal transparency of everybody to everybody else, that we would be, you know, singing the kumbaya and uh, uh, understanding each other, and that Alta Vista is going to be uh, uh, the promised land. It's not true, and you have to acknowledge that behind translation there is domination, that languages are not equal. So the, the uh, uh, certain languages, obviously, uh, in the field of translation, when you do now the sociology of translation, as Pascal Casanova did in uh, her book La Langue Mondiale, and the subtitle is uh, Traduction et Domination, that you have domination. In, in, in translation, when you look at what is being translated and so on and so forth. One of my favorite examples, I am uh, um, often uh, uh, invited by uh, uh, publishing houses to give them my advice about a book originally written in French and to be published in English. One question I always have to answer is, isn't that book, hasn't that book already found its readers in French. In other words, why would we translate it in English? Isn't it true that everybody who would be interested in it already speaks French? Uh, only French speakers would be interested in it. This is a very plain way of, you know, uh, 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 presupposing the universality of the English language, and you are asking yourself whether the particularity of the tribe speaking French could actually be in there, which is something very interesting for the Senegalese that I am, to look at the French being treated as this kind of particular tribe <laughs> by the truly dominant language is something uh, very interesting too. But that is the reality of uh, the relationship between languages. Now the paradox is that the best answer to the domination of languages still is translation. Although the very activity of translation, when you look at it in a sociology a la Pierre Bourdieu, shows that this field, to use the language of Bourdieu, is a field of domination, at the same time, it is through translation that you create reciprocity. So in other words, this idea that the lateral universal, the horizontal universal, is going to be realized by translation remains true ethically in spite of the truth that economically and sociologically you have this relationship of hierarchy and domination between languages. So thank you for your... Hello, 
Garcia. Hi. Uh, his question made me think of something. Uh, I remember being uh, in school, I will say in first grade, and uh, um, my native language is Wolof, and uh, the teacher was teaching in French, and I didn't understand anything. And his question asking what African society could have been if they had um, uh, their own languages. In Senegal, for instance, you learn in French, and I didn't understand anything. And for that reason, I was a so-called bad student. And I, <clears throat> and I think about all the, the people who end up dropping out of school because they are taught in a language that is not their language. And uh, you don't see it in this country. They speak English, that's the language that they speak. So can you talk about that, the impact, and maybe to come back to this question, what these African society could have been if uh, the citizens of those countries were taught in their own languages? Sure, sure. And this is a very important problem. As you know, I'm, I'm so happy to see you here. And, uh, we, we have been dealing with that question for a long time in, uh, in, 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 in Senegal. And uh, uh, everybody is convinced that you have to have a coherent uh, uh, policy of languages. Uh, uh, having the child uh, uh, continue, uh, start school in the language that is the language that she speaks at home, in some kind of continuity with her experience of learning from her parents in the first language is very important. Many, uh, um, many uh, experiences have been already conducted showing that kids who are taught first in their own language, Wolof, Jola, Pular, etc., and then uh, who are taught in French, catch up uh, very quickly. Uh, and so the whole problem is to generalize that. I understand that the situations are very different from an African country to another African country. In Senegal, we have, when you look at it, actually, we have very few languages. We have Wolof that everybody speaks, unless you start deciding that everybody speaks it, and then you will find out that only 40% of people <laughs> speak it, which is already a problem. But as, as long as you say nothing, everybody speaks uh, Wolof. <laughs> Uh, uh, so it is different from a country like Cameroon, where you have many different tiny languages, so, uh, or, or, or Cote d'Ivoire even, even if people speak uh, Jula, deciding on a language uh, 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 where you do not have the, the lingua franca. So the only answer is you have to be pluralist. I mean, uh, you, you, you do not want to, to, to favor the imperialism of any given language, no matter how small a language is, a language is always a face of the human adventure. So every single language has, is worth uh, being uh, developed. So, But it means the complications of how you are going to conduct your, uh, 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 your policy, the, the linguistic policy. But it is true, you, you're absolutely right, that our uh, systems of education have to integrate 
the African languages. They have to integrate. I uh, was invited, as you know, uh, um, a few years ago by the president, uh, uh, the current president of Senegal, to conduct, to, to, head, to be the head of a commission reflecting on uh, the reform of higher education. This was about higher education, not really elementary schools. But one of the recommendations we made in that team was to think of a, a, a linguistic policy. If you think of a linguistic policy now, according to what I'm thinking and saying and the quotes from my work that uh, uh, Gary has uh, uh, read, I believe that French or English or Portuguese are what I call languages of Africa. I don't call them African languages, but they are languages of Africa. Obviously, if someone hears me speak French and hear me pretend that French is foreign to me, I would be ridiculous saying that. I'm obviously 100% uh, 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 French if being French means speaking French. At the same time, I'm 100% Wolof. Uh, and now I'm close to 98% English, I guess, <laughs> if you are generous enough with me. So, uh, uh, yes, uh, that is, that is uh, how, how, how things should be thought of in, in, in connection with the, the system of, of education. But we cannot afford to have that many dropouts because the kids are not speaking the language of the school is not the language that they have at home. So at a very early age, you discourage certain kids just because they do not grasp the règle du participe passé. And well, if they were taught uh, elements of geometry and, and mathematics and arithmetics in, in, in Wolof, uh, and then afterwards uh, learn it in, in French or in English, it would have been much better. I agree with you. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast, celebrating Suleiman Bashirdiyanya's book, The Ink of the Scholars, Reflections on Philosophy in Africa. I hope you'll join us next time when we discuss Yosef Sorit's book, Spirit in the Dark, A Religious History of Racial Aesthetics. From Columbia University's Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Anne Levitsky.